Well, it is my great joy once again to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 24 through 43 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful gospel. This morning we are going to learn much about the promises that the Lord has given to the kingdom, specifically in this age to the church, as you will see, and what we have to look forward to, both now and forevermore. Before we look at the text, may I just set the stage a little bit by saying that often in the chaos of life and ministry, it's easy for we as Christians to begin to get confused and frustrated and even discouraged about our faith because we many times wonder if it makes any difference whatsoever. We see our little Calvary Bible Church and our saints kind of scattered around and it's easy to look at our society and think, my goodness, do we really make a difference here? We look at the moral freefall that we've been in in our country for so long and so often it's hard to even tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Sometimes the church looks like the world. And we look around and we think, well, the wicked seem to be prospering. What about us? And those who truly desire to remain faithful and walk with the Lord can sometimes get frustrated, can sometimes get discouraged. Now, think about this, folks. If we feel that way, and I know we do, we all do at times. I do. You do. But if we feel that way with millions of Christians all around the world, with our libraries filled with great theology, with the ability to click on a website and learn all kinds of things about the Word of God, <clears throat> with churches on every corner, with laws protecting our freedom of religion, with the legacy of 2,000 years of Christianity, if we still wonder if we make a difference and wonder if we're going to survive, how do you think the first century disciples must have felt? Here they were living in apostate Judaism that dominated their culture, dominated their society. People that violently, violently opposed Christ. Then along with that, they had the Romans, all the Gentiles, all the pagan idolaters that knew nothing of, of God and people utterly controlled by their lusts. And in the morass of all this wickedness, in the swamp of all of this evil, you have this handful of Christians following the most controversial and hated man on the planet named Jesus. And he's soon going to die. So it's real easy to see how they could have been discouraged, and certainly they were discouraged. They were even afraid after the Lord left them. But the Lord knew all of this, and so he begins to prepare their hearts. These people add new meaning. I should say the early Christians add new meaning to the concept of minority. And in today's text, we're going to find great encouragement because in Matthew 13, there are eight parables, and we've already looked at the first one last week, the parable where Jesus encouraged them by explaining the four hearts. Remember that? The four hearts that they would encounter with the sower of the 
of the, uh, the sower and the seed and the soil. And today we're going to look at three other parables that kind of work together, the second, third, and fourth parable. And in these three parables now, we're going to find great insight into the types of things that we will face in the church age. This is what Jesus was preparing them for. He was helping them to understand what was going on, this age of the kingdom of heaven, which is a period of time biblically between his first coming and his second comings, uh, a time even, frankly, that will extend into the millennium. And so if you approach the scripture this morning with these questions, you will be in good stead. If you will ask the question, well, I wonder what's really going to happen to the church. Are, are, are we are, are we really going to survive? What must we do to survive with all of this wickedness around us? What about the unbelievers? How must we respond to them? What's going to happen to them? And so on. Well, with that in mind, let me read this text. And it's a, a longer passage than usual that I would I would endeavor to exposit. But this morning, since it all kind of flows together, I think we will be able to cover it adequately. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open up my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he let the multitudes, he left the multitudes and went into the house and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place, 
there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Three parables with three emphases, all of which give directives and promises to the church. The first parable, obviously, the one of the wheat and the tares, which will help us understand how to respond to unbelievers and tells us about their destiny. The second parable about the mustard seed, which will help us understand how the church will bless the world, as you will see. And then thirdly, this parable about the leaven, helping us understand how the church will permeate the world. First of all, the wheat and the tares. It's introduced in verses 24 through 30. Let me remind you of the imagery here. You've got a sower that is sowing seed. And the good seed, obviously, is falling into good soil. And we understand the imagery there from last week. The good soil of a heart that is receptive to the gospel of Christ. And the seed, of course, being the gospel. The seed falls into that heart and it germinates and it bears fruit. It becomes wheat. But we also see in this parable that an enemy comes and sabotages the field. An enemy comes and sows tares, which are weeds that look identical to wheat, but will not ripen and will not produce grain like wheat. So as a deliberate act of vandalism, these enemies come along and they destroy the crop. The weeds, the tares begin to grow up and they choke out the good growth or they try to deprive the 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 um, the wheat of important nutrients and therefore greatly reduce the yield of the harvest. By the way, this was such a wicked act of vandalism that there were Roman laws against it. So eventually, when the wheat begins to ripen, the workers are horrified to discover that the fields are filled with tares. And they say, how could this possibly happen? I, th- I, I thought you planted wheat. And the owner says, well, an enemy has done this. And so the workers say, well, should we try to tear up the, 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 the tares here? Should we try to uproot them? But the wise farmer says to them, no, 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 no. The roots are intertwined with uh, of the tares are intertwined with the wheat. And if you uproot the tares, you're going to also destroy the wheat. You're going to destroy the good with the bad. So in verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And of course, this is explained in verse 37, where he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So the sower here is Jesus, the son of man, a common reference that he used for himself as the sinless second Adam, the perfectly righteous representative of the human race. And in verse 38, we see that the field is the world. Now, folks, this is important. Catch this. It is not the church. The field is not the church. The field is the world. Now, indeed, there are times when tares are planted in the church. We understand that. But the imagery here has to do with the tares being planted in the world. The field is the world. And the picture here is not the enemy planting seeds in the church, but Christ planting seeds in the world. The text is very clear. And the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, which would refer to true believers. 
and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And in verse 39, it says the enemy is the one who the, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. Now, here's the spiritual truth that we want to glean from this that is so important. Jesus plants true believers all around the world. The sons of the kingdom have been planted ever since the church age began at Pentecost. We, we, we see, well, even before that, as he brings people to himself. And so this is the imagery here, but also we understand that Satan comes along and he also plants unbelievers into the world to sabotage the church, to choke out the church. So what are we supposed to do? What's the wheat supposed to do? Are we to uproot the tares? You'll have to bear with the imagery here. Obviously, where the, the wheat can't do that necessarily. It'd be the idea of the servants doing that. But I think you understand the parable here. Are we to go to war against unbelievers? Are we to somehow legislate Christianity like Constantine did many years ago? Are we to come along and kill all the Muslims? You know, let's resurrect the Crusades of the Middle Ages. Let's execute and torture and imprison those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ like the Roman Catholic Church did during the times of the Inquisitions in the Reformation period. By the way, historically, apostate systems must resort to the sword and to the rack in order to convert people because you must understand they have no other way to do that. They do not have the power of the Spirit of God. They have no spiritual power to advance their fiendish cause. And might I also add that the diabolical cruelties of Roman Catholicism during the Inquisition should continue to outrage humanity, whether religious or not. In fact, if you read the prophecies in the book of Revelation, you will very quickly see that the avenging sword of justice will eventually fall upon that scarlet harlot of the seven hills for her barbaric savagery, both then and now and certainly in the time of the tribulation. And by the way, that is also a damning fate that will fall upon all apostate religious and pagan uh, religious systems that oppose Christ and the church. But bottom line, here's the point. We are not to go to war, go to war against the enemies of Christ. We are to coexist with them and even to love them. When you think about it, Jesus did not come to search and to destroy. He came to seek and to save. Jesus is simply teaching here that let the Christians and the non-Christians live together. Though they will try to malign you, they will try to slander you, they will try to silence you, they will try to persecute you, but I want you to live with them. I want you to love them. Vengeance is mine. May I digress for a moment because this comes up from time to time. People will ask, well, is it okay to pray imprecations like the psalmist did? The imprecatory psalms, which would be the curse-pronouncing psalms. Is it okay to pray that? By the way, those types of maledictions you can read even in the New Testament... Uh, Jesus pronounced curses, uh, you will recall, against the Pharisees. There's the, uh, the apostolic uh, anathema in uh, Galatians 1, 8 and following. Or, you know, cursed, is, uh, let them be accursed if they preach a different gospel and so on. Well, folks, you must remember that the imprecations or the curses that were pronounced in 
the Bible were never retaliatory. They were never motivated with a sense of I want to get even. They were never a reaction to a personal offense, but rather they were always an expression of a righteous indignation that longed to see God's name vindicated. It was always motivated with a with a zeal for the glory of God. They were an expression of a holy hatred toward the enemies of God and therefore a plea for just retribution against them. A judgment, again, reserved for God alone. So think of it this way. In the crucible of suffering, in the crucible of of great persecution, the psalmist, for example, hurled the curses of God back upon his enemies who were also the enemies of God. But none of that would ever negate agape love, which is the love, the highest love, where we would still long, even for our enemies, to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. It was never motivated with a uh, with personal revenge. It was never a demand for judgment prior to a desire to see the, the sinner reconciled to God. So if I can put it this way, when you're going through great pain and you see people persecuting the church, even in America, as we see the persecution begin to mount, and believe me, just because George Bush won doesn't mean that the persecution is going to wane. In fact, I believe that what you're going to see now is a proliferation of persecution upon the church like we have never seen before. So our prayers need to be this. Lord, in the midst of my great agony, I pray that you will grant mercy to my enemies, that you will reconcile them to you by your grace. Lord, I forgive them as you have forgiven me, even as you forgave those who crucified you upon the cross. But God, if your sovereign grace has been refused to them, because of their calloused wickedness, because of their rebellion, if they have exceeded some boundary of repentance that only you would know, I pray that your holy wrath would be poured out upon their head. And I pray, Lord, that you will help me to gladly suffer in the midst of all of this. Lord, I will suffer for you. So, Lord, I'm not praying this merely for my relief, but, Lord, I'm praying primarily for your glory, that your name might be exalted that your holiness might be made known to all of the earth, and that you might glorify yourself in your perfect judgment. That is the mindset of the imprecations that we would see in Scripture. Now, back to the text after that digression. Again, remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not us. And we are never to try to uproot the tares that are intertwined and entangled amongst us. The Lord will make that separation. Verse 39 at the end, it says, at And the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. By the way, isn't that a sobering reminder of the inconceivable judgment that awaits those who reject Christ? Dear friends, it's easy for us to forget this and to think that his angels will be dispatched as divine reapers to execute that judgment. I think of the angels all through the Bible, whenever they appeared The response to that encounter was always one of sheer terror. Remember, people would fall down as dead men. They were absolutely terrifying to those to whom they revealed themselves. And I think of these magnificent beings created by God to communicate his will. These creatures created to execute his purposes. 
to celebrate the glory and, and uh, of God and eternal praise to us. They are ministering spirits. In fact, we know biblically that they even rejoice over every sinner who repents. But to unbelievers, dear friends, they are the innumerable. And if I can put it this way, the indomitable executioners of divine judgment, absolutely powerful, unassailable creatures. And imagine the reaction of unbelievers when someday they see Christ in all of his glory and they stand before the almighty in that great white throne judgment. Imagine the face of unbelieving friends and family members, dear friends, when they see the God of glory, when they have been reaped by his holy angels and they stand before him in judgment. Imagine the look on their face before they're cast into an eternal lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, yes, I know this is a horribly offensive concept for people of our day. We don't like to talk about hell and about judgment. But, dear friends, it is horribly offensive to those who have a low view of the holiness of God, a low view of the glory of God, to those who mitigate both the seriousness and the consequences of sin, which is the violation of his perfect law that is infinitely more offensive to his holiness than anything that we could ever imagine. Beloved, let this be the lens through which you look upon those who are persecuting you, those who hate the church. If I can put it real plainly, those liberals. Think of that when you see them and pray for them and love them, though you hate much of what they would stand for. Too often, I believe, our knee-jerk reaction to Christ rejectors is one of hatred rather than love. Dear friends, learn to look beyond their smirks. Learn to look beyond their scowls and see them standing before the Lord at that great white throne. Never allow their wickedness to exceed your love. Because remember, the Lord loved us when we were what? When we were still sinners. That's right. And we know that someday those who have spurned his love are going to be judged, but those who love him in verse 43 are going to be the righteous who will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. What a glorious promise. I'm reminded that someday in glory, according to Daniel 12:3, that we will shine brightly, the text says, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a wonderful promise. So that's the issue of the wheat and the tares, the destiny of unbelievers and our response to them. But the Lord goes on and he talks about a parable of the mustard seed. It's introduced in verse, verses 31 and following. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. It's like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this, is a, and this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, it's interesting. There's no indication in the Gospels that Jesus explained this parable to his disciples, but there's really no need for explanation. They all understood the mustard seed. It was the smallest of the garden seeds. Not seeds in general. I understand the orchid seed is the smallest of all seeds. But in the garden, and this is what uh, the, the text, the context is here, and the, the Lord makes that clear, 
This would be the smallest garden plant. It was a favorite herb that they would plant. In fact, in Palestine, it would often grow to be a tree about 15 feet high. And certainly the rabbis would use the mustard seed in that day to describe proverbial smallness. So it's a perfect picture of something minute, something very tiny that will grow to something very enormous in contrast. And so it's the perfect picture of the kingdom of heaven, which is now mediated in its rule through the church, which would be therefore great encouragement to the disciples that are wondering with this fledgling church, is this little plant ever going to grow? Is it going to survive the massive numbers of tares and weeds that are trying to choke us out? See, again, dear friends, remember that at this stage, the kingdom of heaven was minuscule. It was very tiny. It seemed utterly inconsequential, even by the world. Since it was spiritual, there was no visible army. Since it was spiritual, there was really no visible king, even though people were hearing that Jesus was saying that he was the king. And even because, of its, because it was spiritual, there, there were really no earthly boundaries to some kingdom. And certainly the king himself was born in obscurity. So there were very few followers of Jesus by this time. So the kingdom was very small. In fact, many would estimate that by the time the Lord ascended back into heaven and even by the time of Pentecost, there may have been at best 500 believers. In fact, just before Pentecost, which would be the birth of the church, church, we read in the scripture that only 120 gathered in prayer in Jerusalem. Of course, they didn't have church growth gurus back then to explain the principles of being seeker sensitive and the Lord knew nothing about how to establish a purpose driven church. So no wonder it was small. But by the time Jesus ascended to heaven, the point is simply this. His kingdom was like a mustard seed. But like a mustard seed, it would grow. And indeed, it has grown. And think of all the believers that have existed since then and to this day. But I believe Jesus is drawing our attention to another crucial aspect of the kingdom through this strange analogy of the mustard seed in the kingdom. Think of this. Even as the smallest of garden seeds grow in large, grow to be large in contrast to its small beginning, also this seed, as all seeds will do, will grow very quickly in glorious unity. Think of this. Until someday the plant reaches maturity. You see, the greatness of the kingdom is far more than its size. Though indeed someday the word of God tells us, for example, in Psalm 72, 8, that the Lord will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But it will also grow in perfect response to a supernatural blueprint. Now think of this. A mustard plant begins with a little seed and within that seed is an inviolable blueprint or a code called DNA that guarantees that it will grow exactly the way the creator has determined that it would grow until it ultimately reaches maturity. And so, too, the church will mature exactly according to an unalterable plan that God set into motion before time began, the Bible tells us. What a glorious promise. And friends, this should be such encouragement to us. Someday the kingdom, now mediated by the church, 
of which Calvary Bible Church is just one little teeny insignificant piece. Someday this kingdom will grow into perfect maturity. It will bear fruit to the glory of God. And as we will see, it will impact the entire world. To change metaphors a bit, the Lord also describes his church as his bride that will someday be presented without spot or blemish. If I can make it immensely practical, and I hope this doesn't sound hideously arrogant, but someday, friends, people are going to know that we were right. You know what? Someday they're going to know we're right. And I don't say that to our glory, but to the Lord's glory. They're, they're going to be able to say, you know what? Jesus was who he says he was. And Calvary Bible Church and all those Christians, they were right. I hope they say that before it's too late. But the parable also pictures great blessing, dear friends, and protection. Notice at the end of verse 32, he says that it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This, of course, is a reference to several Old Testament passages. You may recall in Ezekiel 31, uh, Assyria is pictured as a giant cedar of Lebanon, where, according to verses 3 through 6, all the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth. And all great nations lived under its shade. Likewise, in Daniel's dream in Daniel 4, remember the dream about Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire? There, uh, the, the whole empire was pictured as a giant tree in the midst of the earth. And the text says there in verse 10 and following in Daniel 4, that its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. So here's the point. The tiny kingdom of heaven, the church now, it's going to grow into a mighty tree of, of blessing and protection for all who live in its great limbs, for all who recline under its shade and are fed by its fruit. And if I can give you a very practical and I believe an undeniable illustration of this, look at the United States of America. A perfect illustration. America was founded upon the principles of principles of the word of God. Oh, yes, we've drifted far from that. Keep in mind, one of the words for sin, harmatia, means missing the mark. And what has happened is the mark of the principles of the divine standard would be a bullseye. And what has happened over history is rather than hitting the bullseye, we always miss it a little bit. So we miss the mark. And instead of going back to the bullseye of divine truth, we just move the bullseye and we keep missing it and moving the bullseye. We miss it again. We move the bullseye. You've heard me say this before. And now the bullseye is somewhere over here. So when people come along and says, thus saith the Lord, these people are over here and they think you're an idiot. But the point is that of early on in our country, the word of God was used as the founding principles of our country. People who feared the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and who loved the Lord Jesus Christ drafted our Constitution. This is just a historical fact. They established our government. They established our legal system and so on. And as a result, America has been a source of inestimable Blessing to the world. Citizens all over the world have been able to enjoy the boughs of this great tree. But it's not the country that has been the source of the blessing, but God 
through his people, through his church. Don't you understand? Imagine the world today without the church, dear friends. Imagine the decay that would occur if suddenly the salt of Christianity were removed. You want to see a glimpse of it? Look at the chaos in the Middle East. Look at the chaos in Africa, in godless places. Look at Russia. Now what's happening in Europe? Countless people in the United States and around the world have have benefited by the shade and the protective branches of the kingdom mustard plant tree that flourishes in America. And by the way, it's not fully matured, but it will mature someday, even as and I won't take time to bear this out. But even during the millennial kingdom, it will be matured ultimately when, according to Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. By the way, might I also add that if we were to look in Second Thessalonians 2, we would see that right now there is a supernatural restraint that is currently at work in, in, in the world. Restraining the lawless one, the text says, from Antichrist, which, which is Antichrist, from, from, from being revealed. There the text in Second Thessalonians 2, beginning of verse 7, says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And boy, we see that. All we have to do is look around. We see that. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. A reference to the Spirit of God, we believe. A capital H, till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And it goes on to say the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who will perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Make no mistake about it, dear friends. The kingdom of heaven, which now corresponds to the church of Jesus Christ in this church age, is the source of untold blessing and protection for countless millions around the world. By the way, many in Iraq will give testimony to that fact right now. But Jesus goes on to describe the kingdom with this third parable, another very encouraging and enlightening parable, and that is comparing the kingdom to leaven. Notice verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Now, by the way, here, leaven is not a figure of sin as it is in some other passage. But it rather, it is is a symbol or a figure of pervasive influence. His disciples understood this. In fact, it was an ancient Jewish custom that is still observed in many quarters today for a mother to give her daughter, when she was married, a love gift of a piece of leaven. What she would do is she would make a large loaf of bread and she would save a piece of that leaven out of that loaf of bread to give to her daughter. And this was a special gift because now the daughter would take that piece of leaven and she would use that to begin to make her own bread. And through that bread, she would nourish her family throughout her life from that descendant piece of leaven which was a symbol of great blessing that would permeate that family. So the illustration in the text is simply this. A woman is baking bread. 
He's got three pecks, which is about a bushel. By the way, that was common for that day because they had to eat a lot of bread. Okay, that was something that was very important to them. That was one of their primary foods. So she takes a tiny piece of yeast or of leaven that was saved from the last batch of dough and she hides it deep within the dough. And of course, there is a fermentation process that begins to permeate the entire batch, causing the dough to rise. We know how that works. At least I've been told how it works. I've seen it a bit. I've never done it, so I can't say from firsthand experience. But the parallel is very simply this. The kingdom of heaven is going to have a pervasive influence upon the world. Wasn't that great news to the disciples back then? It's great news to us today. Because the Lord has basically said to them now that, look, I, I, I'm going to judge the tares in time. Uh, uh, the kingdom's going to grow into maturity according to, to, to my sovereign plan. It's going to be a great blessing. It's going to provide great, great, great protection for many. And now he's adding to that promise that or those promises that the kingdom is going to permeate the world like leaven permeates dough. And you could press the metaphor a bit more. Leaven makes the bread taste good, if you want to use that. Imagine the world, dear friends, without the flavor of Christian love. Imagine the world without the sound of God-inspired music. Imagine what the world would be like apart from the, the, the power of Christian literature, apart from the beauty of Christian art and the brilliance of biblically-based law and ethics, not to mention the delicious savor of biblical theology that permeates virtually every aspect of humanity. Imagine what our world would be like without that. By the way, our current election is a prime example of the pervasive influence of the kingdom, is it not? To the utter astonishment of many people, it was a commitment to moral issues that became one of the most deciding factors in this election to reelect President Bush, due largely to that accursed leaven of evangelical Christians. Those people just continue to ferment. You just can't get rid of them. You know, any political party, I don't care if you're a Democrat, an independent, a Republican, or whatever else, any party whose platform includes legalizing the killing of unborn infants and homosexual marriage has no morality. And many people understand that. I could go on beyond that and say that as Christians, because of the influence that we have upon the world, many people don't understand our worldview. And yet it has impacted many others. You see, it's hard, for example, for people that we would call liberals to fathom that there are people who actually believe in the dignity of human life. It's hard for them to understand that there are people that believe and understand the devastating wickedness of homosexual unions. That there are people who actually believe that animals and trees are different than human beings. That there are people that actually believe that man is inherently evil, not good. That there are people that actually believe that SUVs don't cause global warming. That there are people that actually believe that guns don't kill people. People do. That there are people that actually believe that individuals should be allowed to determine where they're going to spend their money rather than the government. 
that there are people that actually believe that the separation of church and state originally was intended to protect the populace from a state church, not eradicate all vestiges of Christianity. It's hard for people to believe that. But there are many people who do. And the reason we do is because we have a biblical worldview. It's hard for them to believe that there are people who actually believe that God is the creator and that we did not somehow crawl out of a primordial swamp and eventually become a bird and then a monkey and now here we are. It's hard for them to believe that the French can't be trusted. And on and on we can go. But dear friends, the thing that is hardest for people to understand is who Jesus is. That is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But by the power of God, the pervasive permeating influence of the true church will continue to do what it was ordained to do. Namely, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ until the last person chosen by God is saved. And there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do to stop that fermentation process. Do you understand? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And as he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not have power over it. We must remember that the real problem in our world today is not political, it's not social, it's not philosophical, dear friends, it is spiritual. Second Corinthians 10, and I'll talk more about this tonight in our service, beginning in verse 3, we read that we, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, which could be interpreted as strongholds of spiritual deception. We are destroying, the text goes on to say, speculations, which would be false ideologies, political thinking, social, religious philosophies and dogma and so on. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. In other words, all of the arrogant ideologies arrayed against God and his word, these are the things that we're fighting. So there will be a continual struggle to preach the gospel. That's why the text goes on to say that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the battle we fight, dear friends, for the cause of Christ is not one of political and social activism but one for spiritual truth. Our divine weaponry is always the prayer, is always prayer and the word. Not human strategies of political and social activism. Beloved, trust God to do what he's going to do with the kingdom, okay? Trust God to continue to raise up a great and glorious people through his method as he has said, he's going to judge sinners. The church will grow into maturity on his divine timetable, as he has promised. And it will continue to have a permeating, pervasive influence. There's no need to panic. There's no need to reinvent ministry to somehow fill churches because we need more people here. God will take care of that in his own timetable. There's no need to come up with some hybrid gospel seed 
as I have said before, that is guaranteed to grow even in the hardest of hearts. No need for any of that stuff. We don't need to wage some culture war to produce a Christian nation. Sure, vote for the right candidates, be involved in community affairs, voice your opinion. But dear friends, don't waste your time and your money trying to whitewash our government and our society with a veneer of morality. This moralizing of America is a very dangerous thing and it inevitably distracts the church from its mission, which is to fulfill the Great Commission. And I'll talk about this much more tonight. Beloved, our spiritual power is in the preaching of the word of God and living out its truth. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said, because it is the power of God unto salvation. So set aside your political agendas and preach the gospel and live it out. And so we take great comfort in these three parables. I want to close with just one, one final thought here. Note, note that all of this truth was determined before we were ever created. Notice in verses 34 and 35, he, he, he tells them that he's speaking to them in parables. And in verse 35, he says, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, bear with me just for a moment. This is a reference to... Asaph, the, the, the psalmist who was a prophet here in Psalm 78, two, and he was basically saying that I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Dear friends, this is incredible. Here's what was going on. Jesus was saying to them that all the rebellion that you see against the kingdom, my dear disciples, and those of you that are living in the church age. And now the Spirit of God, even speaking to those of us here at Calvary Bible Church, all of the rebellion, all of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, all of the difficulties that Christ and his church will experience, all the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that I am now explaining to you, my dear disciples, all of this was ordained from the beginning. In other words, he's not saying to the disciples, <laughs> Boy, guys, you know, I came to all of the, my own people and they've rejected me. And now I'm going to have to come up with a plan B. This is really throwing me a curve here. No, he's not saying that he's going to postpone the kingdom because he's got to react to a foiled plan. That somehow now he's got to to regroup, that he's forced to come up with a new strategy. No, dear friends, everything that happened back then and today was ordained by God and it is perfectly conformed to His sovereign plan. Oh, child of God, I, I hope you find great comfort in these truths. There's no need to fret and fume about all the terrible things occurring in the world. Just do what you're told. What are you told to do? Go out and make disciples. Fulfill the Great Commission. Be obedient. Be faithful. Be obedient and worship the Lord. Lead your families and his marvelous plan of redemption will never be thwarted. His kingdom is unassailable. Rest in those glorious truths. I want to close with words of both petition and praise that flow out of the great theology of today's text. Oh, come thou king triumphant. Come claim your righteous throne. Thrice holy God triumvirate, by grace we are your own. 
Come, Jesus, Lord of heaven. Behold, your saints await thy kingdom like the leaven, the world it permeates. O Christ, our great Redeemer, thou lover of our souls, make haste, beloved Deliverer. We cry with pleas so bold, for only in thy presence our longing souls will find the rest that you have promised when as the sun we'll shine. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these glorious truths. Thank you for the promises that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, that we serve a sovereign king whose plans cannot be thwarted and whose kingdom will indeed come and fill the earth and all of the heavens. For it is in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.